All right, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll finish chapter 5 today and possibly do a verse or two of chapter 6. Maybe, we'll see. Uh, we got to verse 23. We're going to postpone on verse 23, and I'm going to come back to it after I do verse 24 and 25. Verse 23 is almost like a side note, something he throws in, and we're going to come back to that. Verse 24 and 25 ties in uh, with the whole chapter. And I say that for this. I want you to think back for just a little bit. I know it took a long time to study the chapter, but, but we began the chapter talking about you know, not rebuking an older man and, and don't mistreat each other if there's any kind of problem, any kind of difficulty, whatever it is, treat each other with respect. If somebody's doing something wrong against you, don't go and, and give them a good current, treat them with respect, talk to them kindly, do that to older women, younger women, uh, be respectful, be kind to each other. He goes on to talk about uh, widows and he says, we are to honor widows that are really widows, or the King James will say widows indeed. And he goes along to give a list of qualifications. If a widow is to be taken into the number by the church to be financially supported, she has got to meet certain qualifications, if you will. She's got to be a person that does good deeds and all of this. She can't be a person that, that lives of the world and does whatever she wants. So ultimately, when you're talking about all of these things, it comes down to us as Christians, we've got to look at each other. We've got to measure each other's lives. We've got to be a fruit inspector, maybe sometimes that we call it. We went on to talk about, and Paul tells Timothy about elders, you know. We've got to decide whether or not an elder rules well. And if he rules well, he's worthy of double honor, most definitely our respect, and, and perhaps even our financial support. But again, we've got to be able to look at that person and decide whether or not they're doing good or whether they're not. Then we went on to talk about last week that, you know, if an elder is in sin, if he is living in a constant sinful situation and he won't repent, then we have to rebuke that person. We have to rebuke him in front of everybody. You know, if enough witnesses are brought forth, if it's the real deal, and if we don't receive an accusation unless there's backing behind it. But again, it goes back to the fact that we've got to inspect each other. We've got to look at each other's life. Not that we are nitpickers. Here's what I don't want you to get. Uh, my wife says you shouldn't say nitpickers. That's kind of gross. But you guys know what I mean, right? You know what I mean. A nitpicker is somebody that just, you know, micro-analyzes everything. That's not what he's saying at all. Ultimately, it's we're our brother's keepers, what this comes down to. I want you to go to heaven. You want me to go to heaven. So if there's something I see that's glaring and obvious, I need to help you with that. So here's the thing. We've given all of these commands to look at each other, and if it's good, you can do this. If it's bad, you need to do this, whatever it is. In verse 24 and 25, he helps us to better understand how we're going to see that. So he ties all of this chapter together in those two verses. He says, verse 24, Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. But those of some men, they follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. I want you to notice these verses, they balance each other out. And I want you to think about your life, and I'll think about mine. There are flaws in my life that's pretty obvious to a lot of people, maybe. Maybe if you're around me a lot, you're, you're going to see certain flaws that are just obvious, and they're shortcomings. But there are some flaws that I have, none of you know about. 
Couldn't everybody say that? Couldn't everybody say that there's things in your life that, that you really struggle with and everybody just knows it, but then there's other things that maybe you struggle with on an inward uh, side of you? You know, maybe it's the thoughts that you have or, or whatever it is and, and, and nobody else knows about it. He says some sins are clearly evident. When we are dealing with other people, when we are appointing people to positions, again, this chapter talked about, you know, don't lay hands on anyone hastily. And we talked about the fact that, that that's either one of two things. It's either appointing someone to a position too quickly, or it's either bringing judgment or making a decision based upon that person too quickly. Either one of those things, sometimes things are evident. Sometimes we find them out later on, right? You know, think about when in appointing an elder. You know, it, it could sometimes you could appoint an elder in a quick matter, and maybe later on you find out this guy's really got some serious issues going on, but they weren't, you know, made manifest to everybody at the time. You see what Paul's trying to say? He's trying to tell Timothy, he says, you've got to use some wisdom. You've got to exercise some patience. Some things, when you're looking at each other and you're trying to help each other, are evident, good and bad. You know, sometimes in people's lives, the things, the good deeds that they do, you know, sometimes everybody knows about it, right? If you think about each other and, and maybe think about the person sitting beside you, there's some things those people do that's sitting beside you that you know about, right? And then there's some things, there's some things that are very, very good that maybe that person sitting beside you does, and maybe you won't know that till they're dead and gone. What about Dorcas? When did we find out all the good things that Dorcas did? She was dead, right? She was dead and all these widows come together and they're lining up and they're showing what? Look, look at what this lady did. And, and maybe it wasn't evident to everybody at the time, but once she's gone, man, you, you find out about it. How many times have you been to a funeral of somebody you thought you knew pretty good and you find out some things about them that, man, they've done some amazing things, but nobody ever knew about it? You see, Paul's telling Timothy, you're given the charge of all of these things that this chapter's about. And you've got to realize not everything is, is just plain and easy to see. Sometimes there's going to be things that you find out later on, good and bad. So he says, you've got to exercise wisdom. You've got to exercise patience. And that's good advice to all of us. Don't make judgment calls on each other based upon something that you think you know at this uh, exact moment. Sometimes it may take some time to figure all of this out. So again, exercise wisdom, exercise patience when you're dealing with one another. All right, now back up to verse 23. Verse 23 is a verse that, man, a lot of people twist and turn. And it's kind of odd to me almost that it's just kind of like Paul just throws it in the middle of a, you know something that it seems like it doesn't even belong, right? No longer drink only water but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. You know, people appeal to that and they say, you know what, it's okay to social drink because Paul told Timothy that he could drink a little wine for his stomach. You know, if, if I'm the person that's looking for an excuse to do something, you can always find it, can't you? If you're looking for an excuse to believe something that you think is okay, you can find it in the Bible. Because you can take and you can twist whatever you want to to fit whatever it is, the narrative that you're trying to, to make it fit. I want you to notice what Paul tells you. He says, no longer drink water only. 
no longer drink water only. Any of you ever been to third world countries? Anybody? I see a few nods, a few. Can you just go over there and start drinking the water? What happens? When we go to India in the past, and uh, they would tell us, if you drink that water, you're a dead man. I don't know if you'd really die, but you would be very, very sick. When we would take a shower in India, we had to be very careful. You know, you wash your face with a wet wipe. You didn't get the water in your nose and in your mouth, and you try to not get it in your ears. Why? Because it's going to make you sick. It's contaminated. Now, those people, a lot of times, well, they just drink, you know, straight out of the creek or whatever, but it'd kill me. So, could it be possible that Timothy was drinking some contaminated water? Yeah. Yeah. And Paul is telling me, Timothy, you've you got to understand, you're drinking this water that's contaminated, and you are sick. It's frequent infirmities. You're sick more than you're not sick. He says, you're going to have to do something about it. Now, here's what I want us to see. Paul tells him, Timothy, you're going to have to mix a little wine in with your water. Why would he tell him to do that? What would, what would wine do to that water? Would it not kill maybe the bacteria? Would it not make it to where that, that it would not make him sick anymore and it wouldn't poison him? And Okay, well, here's a question. Why do you think Paul had to tell him this? Why do you think Paul told him this in a letter? For all of us to even read today, do you think it's possible that Timothy was, had such a high moral character that he had rather be sick than to attain his influence? Think that's possible? If you're a person and you know that if you would just do this thing, that it would, it would help you to be better and to not be sick all the time, but you are so concerned with your influence you are so concerned with what Paul told in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from every appearance of evil. You're so concerned with that that you had rather be sick than to take a chance to lead somebody down a wrong path. And Paul's telling him, say, Timothy, your value as being a minister to all of these people to, to deal with all of these problems, your value is greater than, than this thing that you think is you know, going to taint everything about you. He says, Timothy, it is okay to take a little wine in a medicinal form. It's okay. And you know, there's not a person alive today that would argue with something like that. Let me ask you something. Any of you ever took a pain pill? Don't hold your hands up. I don't know. But you ever took a pain pill? Yeah, I mean, I've had all kinds of surgeries, and, and I've hurt like crazy. And if I take that pain pill that the doctor tells me to take when I need to take it, what does it do for me? Exactly what it was designed to do. Okay, is there a difference in me doing that and me deciding on a Friday night, hey, I think I'm going to pop me a few hydrocodones here, so I'll just feel a little bit better on Friday. Is there a difference? And everybody understands that, and nobody will argue with that. But then when it comes to this whole idea of alcohol, people will take the exact same argument, and then they'll, they'll argue in favor of it. But they won't do that on anything else whatsoever. You see, we understand here that, that God is telling us through inspiration, there are certain things that for medicinal purposes, you know, it, it's going to be okay. But it's okay for that purpose only. Every one of us drink a little alcohol. Probably everybody in here has taken NyQuil. 
before, have you not? Yeah, if you are sick and you've got a cold and you feel horrible and you just want to get a night's sleep, you might go to the dollar store and get you a little NyQuil and you're going to take it and it's got a little bit of alcohol in it. But you don't take it on a Friday night just to, to get a little buzz going, do you? No. You see, we understand that. It's common sense. But sometimes what it is, is is we've got a preconceived notion in our mind and we decide we're going to take this verse and we're going to make it fit what we already believe. And in doing so, we've got to twist the verse. You see, the Bible tells us clearly. Proverbs 20, verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and he who is led astray thereby, he's not wise. Proverbs 23 begins and, and he talks about there at the end of the chapter, he says, you know, who has woe, who has contentions, who has all of these just problems. He goes down a whole list. He said, those people that look at the wine. Those people that look at it. You know, we argue sometimes that, that Jesus, he made wine. Jesus made wine. But the Old Testament explicitly tells us in Habakkuk 2 verse 15, woe unto him that gives his neighbor drink. It condemns the person that gives his neighbor something alcoholic to drink. And then we say Jesus made intoxicating wine. If he did, then he sinned according to Habakkuk 2 verse 15, and therefore he's not perfect, and he can't be the Messiah. You see, we can't take a verse and twist it to sometimes fit what we want it to be. You say, oh, that's Old Testament. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 3, the Bible tells us that we've spent enough of our lifetimes, enough of our past lifetimes, living like heathens. And he lists three things that we did in our past lifetimes that we don't do anymore. One of those things is drunkenness. You can go study it yourself. One of it is drunkenness. That's just down and out drunkenness, and everybody agrees with that. You can't do that. You can't be an alcoholic and drink every day and be pleasing to God. Everybody knows that. Well, then you list a reveler. A reveler is somebody that maybe just parties from time to time, right? You know, he gets out, and he, he just kind of sows his wild oats, and he pulls, a, he pulls one, and, and he says, can't do that either. But then the King James has got a third thing, and it calls it banquetings. Banquetings. What does that mean? Do a study on it sometimes. That's just a social drink. He says you spend enough of your lifetime in being an alcoholic, in being someone that maybe just parties on the weekend or has a social drink. He says that was the thing that the heathens do. He says as a Christian, you don't do that. You see, Paul had to tell... Timothy, you can do this, but you only do it medicinally. You don't do it for fun. You don't do it. And, and maybe, you know, Timothy even needs to announce if he's preaching there, listen, the Apostle Paul told me that if, if I don't do this, I'm going to be sick all the time. And you make sure the people understand, you know, hey, this is why I'm doing it. I, 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 don't, I don't believe in doing this socially. I don't, whatever it is. All right, here's another question. Why didn't Paul just heal him? Have you ever considered that? I mean, you got a man that, that Paul feels like that he's his son in the faith and he loves him and he wants him to, to do all of these good things and he's charging him with all of this and, and Paul had miraculous power to heal, right? All he had to do was go over there and, and say it or touch him or whatever it was and, and Timothy's better. Why didn't Paul heal him? That's a fair question, right? You know, if the Spirit... Is there uh, working within Christians and working within Paul just to do whatever he wills? Why didn't he just heal him? Well, that's a good question, but the answer is the Spirit was never sent to do those type of things. 
In Mark chapter 16, verse 20, the Spirit was sent to be used to confirm the Word of God. Did Timothy need the Word of God confirmed unto him? Would healing him of his frequent infirmities, would that do anything to confirm the Word of God? Would it benefit the Apostle Paul in that sense? Would it benefit Timothy in that sense? No. So you see, it would be an abuse of the power of the Spirit for Paul to heal Timothy. And if that's not right, then why in the world didn't he do it? If you knew somebody that was sick, and, and you know you could have had the power to heal them, wouldn't you have done that? Yeah. But you see, we've got to understand the Spirit was not sent for that purpose. People today claim all of these things that the Spirit does today. I'm going to tell you something. That's all false because the Spirit was not sent for that purpose. The Spirit was sent to confirm the Word of God. The Spirit most indeed did confirm the Word of God. It is perfect, complete, finished. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, verse 10 and 11 and following. All of that's complete now. That which is perfect has come, so that which is in part, it's done away with. We don't need that anymore. Just the same as, as Paul didn't abuse it in order to heal somebody that he loved Dearly. So that's chapter 5, unless anybody's got any comments on it. Uh, we'll move on. All right, chapter 6. Chapter 6. We're going to try to do the first two verses. Chapter 6, in some ways, ties, I think, should probably be in chapter 5, if you want my opinion. Uh, the people that broke it up, they weren't inspired. They just decided to break it up. Chapter 6, the first two verses, are going to deal with, again, with relationships and how to treat each other, and that's what all of chapter 5 was about. Relationships and how to treat each other. Chapter 6 opens up, and it's going to talk about slaves. You know, when we think about slaves, we think that's a horrible thing, and most definitely it is a horrible thing. But I want us to understand something. I did some study on this, and, and, and everything I studied matched up. In the Roman Empire, in the first century, there was about 60 million slaves. You let that set in just for a minute. In the Roman Empire in the first century, there's 60 million slaves. It was estimated by scholars that anywhere between a third and a half of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. It's also said that if you were a very wealthy Roman, you could, have, you could have as many as 20,000 slaves that were at your disposal. So was that a big part of society? Yeah, that was a massive part of society. All right, here's sometimes the question is posed. Well, why in the world didn't Jesus, when he gave us the Bible, why didn't he just send all these preachers to go out and command that all of that be abolished immediately, you know, and, and just get rid of it? Well, let me ask you something. You've got an empire, and as much as half of that empire are slaves, and the other half are slave owners. If they had went out and preached that, what would that have caused? Absolute chaos, right? Is God in the chaos business? Did God's word abolish slavery? Let's be fair. Did God's word actually abolish slavery? If you want to look and be honest, yes. God's Word teaches us how to treat each other. Did God's Word abolish slavery in this country? 
I believe it absolutely did because you see this country was based upon biblical principles. And biblical principles teach us we don't treat each other that way. And God, through his infinite wisdom, he knew with time and with teaching and with the hearts of men and women changing, what would happen? Well, those types of things would go away. And you know, even today, across the world, in countries that depend upon the Bible and they look to the Bible, you know, those types of things, they, they don't happen. You see, God knew better than we do. Sometimes we'd say, well, just make a law and get out there and tell them they can't do that. You would have had upheaval, you would have had wars, you would have had Christians killed by the masses. God knew that. So you see, his wisdom is greater uh, than our wisdom. You know, God tells us, let's flip just a second before we get into it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, God tells uh, somebody that is a slave just a few things. Again, he doesn't tell them to uh, start a revolution. He doesn't tell them to rebel. He doesn't tell them to, to fight against it. He tells them, you're here in the first century, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. He says, but as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and so I ordain in all the churches. Let's, let's break this down. He says, being called is becoming a Christian. He says, when you become a Christian, if you find yourselves in certain situations that are not explicitly forbidden in the Bible, he says, you walk in that situation. Now, people abuse this. People abuse this because they say, well, if you become a Christian and you're in a so-called bad marriage, well, the Bible says you just stay where you're at. God would never tell you to stay where you're at in something that's already explicitly forbidden. He is telling us if you've been called in a situation that is not inherently sinful, you stay there. Verse 18, he says, was anyone called while circumcised? Well, let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. If you're a Jew or a Gentile and you become a Christian, ultimately that really doesn't matter. You know, if you're a Gentile and you become a Christian, that doesn't mean you've got to become a Jew and vice versa. He says, if you're, you know, of a Jewish heritage and you become a Christian, you're still of Jewish heritage. That has no bearing on Christian. No, you don't keep the law of Moses, but it has no bearing on being a Christian. He says, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Well, he says, do not be concerned about it. Well, that's hard, isn't it? You mean, God, I'm a slave and now I'm a Christian? You expect me to just continue to be a slave? God says, don't be concerned about it. Could you go to heaven and be a slave? What's God concerned about? Being a slave or going to heaven? He's concerned about the latter, not the former. He's concerned about you going to heaven. And he says, don't be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. Hey, if you can be free, be free. But he says, don't, don't try to cause an uproar in all these problems. But he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, he is, who is called while free is the Lord's slave. He says, it really doesn't matter what situation you're in. When you are become a Christian, you're the Lord's. You're either the Lord's freedman, you're the Lord's slave. Ultimately, you belong to the Lord. He says, that's really what matters. Let's go back to chapter 6, and I want to get these first two verses uh, before we leave. He says, let as many bond servants as are under the yoke 
count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. He says, if you are under the yoke, I want you to think about that. That's a hardship. If somebody has placed a yoke on your shoulders, that's a hardship. You know, in the New Testament, it talks about people put the yoke of the Old Testament on people's shoulders, and it was a yoke they couldn't bear. It was heavy. It was burdensome. He says, some of you Christians, you're under a yoke of a master. And the master in verse 1 is an unbeliever, not a Christian. He says, you're under that yoke of the master, and that master is your absolute owner. He says, you count him worthy. You count him worthy of honor. Think about that. that that's, that's hard. You consider yourself, you're a slave, and you're a slave of a wicked man. And God says, I, I want you to honor that man. How do you do that? I, I mean, how, how does that work? You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, we're to honor the king. Well, when Peter said that, Nero was the king. And Nero was a wicked, evil person. But Peter says, you honor him. You respect him. You realize that he has the authority over you and you treat him as such. But you see, there's a greater purpose in mind here. There's a greater purpose. God is not so much concerned about the temporal. And in our minds, I think I'm going to work on a lesson. In our minds, everything that we focus on is the temporal, right? What we can see, what we can touch, what we can feel, all of those things, that's not what God's concerned about. He says, I'm concerned about something greater. He says, you count your master worthy of honor. Listen to this. So the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. If you found yourself in the position that you're a slave and you are a slave to an evil master, you need to be the best slave that guy's got. You need to be the most honest, the most trustworthy, the hardest worker. You're a person that shows respect and honor. And he says, therefore, God can't be blasphemed. When people judge God and religion, who do they look at to make that judgment? Somebody be fair about it. When people today, forget this first century, first Timothy stuff. When people today judge God and religion, when people judge the church of Christ, who do they look at? They look at us. So how we act, yeah, that, that's everybody's opinion on God, on religion, on the Lord's church, all of that. And Paul's telling Timothy to tell these people, you know, if you've got a wicked master and you're a slave and you're acting like a heathen, that slave owner is going to think Christianity is nothing but wicked. And he will never want any part of that. I didn't finish. I tried hard. It's actually five till. They cheated me out of five minutes. So we'll blame them. See you next week.